Constructed Criticism is sponsored by Oasis Games. MTGOasis.com is the place to get cards for your next Magic event. Try them out with code CCMTG for 15% off of your first order, and use the code WouldThatBeGood for 4% off of every order. Want to support the show directly? Head on over to Patreon.com CCMTG to check out some awesome benefits and future goals for the show. Thanks for listening, and here's this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at purentgeo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 410th episode of Constructed Criticism. I'm your host, Mason. Join my co-host, Abe and Spencer. Abe, how you doing today? I'm doing good. It's getting hot out there. Yeah? No hat today from you. Yeah, no hat. Probably going to be on hat hiatus for a few months now. It gets pretty pretty hot in the summer, too. No hat in, at all during the summer? Not even like a little like a little sun visor? Oh, no, I'm not a visor guy at all. I hate <laughs> brims are not really my thing. Sometimes if, if my hair all gets right. a little long. Donation goal. Donation goal. We'll buy a, a CCMTG visor. <laughs> yeah. If we had $100 on Patreon in the next month. I'll wear, I'll wear it out too. I guess that's not public info. If we, get, if we get four patrons this month, I'll buy a, a CCMTG visor. Hell yeah. yeah, you can wear it when you go to the casino where you play Ultimate Frisbee with your homies. Yeah, I'll be, I'll, be card, I'll be card sharking at the LGS in my CCMTG visor. It'll, oh be, good, it'll be good publicity. When I was doing LTO and CC at the same time, my co-hosts were Danny Cathro and Michael Hinderocker. They wanted me to do uh, CCMTG rompers. They wanted rompers. And they both said they would wear them to the Pro Tour. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not paying for this. Oh my goodness. Well, hey, speaking of the Pro Tour, it's all about that today. We're talking all about Sam. We're going to go over the Pro Tour, everything in between. But first, we need to be doing Always Improving. It's the main point of the show. And Abe, it's your turn to go up first. How would you always improve this week? Yeah, so uh, this week's Always Improving comes courtesy of a coaching session I did, which was mostly theoretical. We talked a lot about hammer time and specifically like how I had been approaching matchups um, because they felt like they'd been out of the format for a bit, things had changed since Lurus had been banned, and they were kind of having trouble adapting to the way things had changed with the way the decks were constructed. And something that I noticed as I was, you know, working through things with this person was how differently I had been thinking about magic in general, and also specifically in the lens of this deck, uh, just about magic in the way of trying to focus more in the modern era of magic on invalidating cards and really playing to attack very specific points of interaction when I'm playing or when I'm making strategic game plans uh, than, you know, necessarily focusing on something like grinding someone out with just, I'm going to generate generic resource advantage. I was really thinking about the game and notice I was talking about and thinking about the game in much more a way of specific pinpoints than I had really ever ever in the past and that really after that session i was sitting there like wow that's really like i hadn't thought about it because i've been doing it but uh that's been like a really really big way that i feel like i've stepped things up and has been really important to especially as magic changes all the time and you know things like modern horizons 2 drop in the game develops forward in uh in these power jumps 
that that has been huge in me adapting to that. And uh, I've really been been thinking about that, applying it to other places as well, not just in Hammer Time, is of where I've been seeing it and where I haven't been seeing it and how to use that to grow my game. So it's a definitely a, an interesting thing to think about, especially in the current era of Magic. I actually think that it segues really well into one of my points that I wanted to make in Always Improving. I have a pretty big one. I'm going to do them in a different order than I was going to, but what you just said makes me think about kind of where I'm at in my gaming space. So right now, I'm about to prepare for playing in Smash World Tour Crown 2, and today I unfortunately had to take PTO because I was in the emergency room for five hours yesterday and I'm not allowed to drive, and long story short, I'm I'm okay. Nobody worry about me, but I got to play and talk to Matt Kling a lot, who's my Smash partner, a former host of the show. And one of the things that we got talking about is he had said something. I don't even remember what he said, but we talked about it's analog to magic because I mentioned that I thought magic players were bad at doing this and how magic players practice versus how Smash players practice. The thing we got talking about is like, I'll go really specific for those who play fighting games or uh, play different types of games. My Smash partner has a problem where he specifically will roll to the to the left or do things to the left to push his opponent to the right because he's used to doing his combos to the right or used to doing sequences to the right. This is really similar to basketball where players will push themselves and their opponents to like fade left and then go to the right hand or fade right and go to the left hand depending on what they're comfortable with. And in Magic, it's really funny because... You think like, well, what's this analog to magic? And in magic, it's actually uh, when you're playing like a mid-range deck or you're playing limited and you force yourself into a specific role. We actually got talking quite a bit about Smash to Magic analogs. And it was really interesting in understanding like, what are the things that I'm doing in Smash that I was once good at in magic that I'm no longer good at in magic and things like that. And it actually got me thinking quite a bit about aggressively slanted mid-range decks and about ramp decks. Additionally, it got me thinking about a thing that was said on a podcast that I love. It's called Tweak Talks. It's by my, my favorite content creator. And there's this moment a few episodes ago where they talked about resetting neutral. And if you're a fighting game character, you'll understand what this means. But I'm going to put it in magic terms, which is that they wanted you, when you didn't understand what's happening, to go back to the middle to go back to where everything is equal between the two players. And in Magic, we talk a lot about who's the aggressor and who's the defender. But I think that one of the things that gets lost a lot in Magic is what are the pivot turns when you aren't the aggressor or when you aren't the control player. And I think resetting neutral and understanding, taking a moment to understand where we're at in a specific match and where my role is at this moment is something that's not talked about a lot in Magic. And I had to contextualize it. What is really, if you play a lot of fighting games, and you might understand this, but like a turn-based game that happens at almost supersonic speeds compared to Magic. And it was really interesting. It also made me think a lot about the fact that I was declined. Last week I, I had talked about, I thought I was going to be approved for Metafy and wasn't. And I just want to take a moment to like talk about the things that I'm talking about here in Smash and Magic, I have a pretty big desire to be a Magic coach. I don't have a big desire to play on the Pro Tour again, but I do think that I can help players who are in the RCQ to PT grind. If you're interested, let me know. 
And I specifically, um, in the last couple of weeks, decided to focus my efforts in the constructed formats, you know, in standard, modern, and pioneer. And I think that all of these things kind of coalesced for me this week. I don't know, it all kind of clicked, where it was like, here's the fundamentals that you understand, that you want to teach, and it was, I don't know, kind of refreshing. Abe, you nodded your head a lot during me talking, and I'm just curious, like, did you relate to the fighting game stuff? Did you relate to the magic game stuff? I actually, you relating to I there? loved everything you just said. That all made a ton of sense to me, because I know a little bit about fighting games enough to know the analogs and stuff, and I just, I don't know, anytime I hear someone talking about those kinds of things, and how they can relate back, I find myself, like, really engaged. Mace, you played, um... Guilty, Guilty Gear, Gear Strive. Yes! Somebody I was listening to the other day talked about the analogs between It, Street Fighter, and Magic. Like, they compared the three games. And it was really interesting to kind of hear about, like, I don't know, how interactions take place in a turn-based game, and how you get to interact at a certain speed depending on the archetype you're playing. Uh, and it made me think a lot about how magic players choose to play the game. Magic is an interesting thing where sometimes you'll see this happen when like multiple people play a game on the league or something like that. But like players want to play like turns out similarly, but differently for like reasons that become apparent when they think about the role they're trying to take in the matchup for like casting a spell post combat versus like, you know, trying to resolve certain things in different orders to try and like you know hit certain things and get to certain in game and end states and trying to get them to use the interaction the way they want them to thinking that's how it's supposed to play out despite often ending up in like similar spots at the end what you just said is like really accurate when i play with me matt and quentin where we'll all want to end our turn on the same like untapped lane same things available to us but we'll want to do them in different orders i don't know if we have a debate about it but it's like why do we want this thing? And understanding perspectives can be interesting, even if you don't agree. I don't know if that makes sense. It's important to understand the way, more so than anything, the reason why people do things is like, especially I think in magic, some of the most important stuff. Because A, it's like figuring out the way people think and work through things is important when you're playing a game. But B, like that matters more than like the results of the game, right? Like I was watching the Pro Tour finals with somebody and Simon Nielsen was like on a mold of three, or whatever, and the person could express a iteration and try and find one of their like seven one, one drop removal spells. And I was saying, oh, maybe you're supposed to just like spew a little here and just try to like find either land or one of your bolts. Because if you find a bolt, the game ends on the spot. And if you spew a little and you just get like a land off this and you have a couple lands, it's fine because you're like a control deck that goes long. And uh, the other person was like, oh, I think I would just like develop my mana tapped here and move on. And, like, the reasoning for all these things make a lot of sense or whatever, but, like, what matters more so than, like, what play happens and which one wins the game is, like, all right, well, which one's the most effective over all the games? Because the games play out so variably that it's like, okay, yeah, maybe you're supposed to in, like, this one spot because you have so many resources. We have, like, let's say that, you know, he had, like, two expressive iterations. Like, okay, you actually need to make sure you hit your land drop so that you can use your expressives to double spell. and Blah, blah, blah. You know, it can go on for a bunch there, so... I don't know if Abe has anything he wants to say on that. I'm really I... just thinking about the, the example that comes to my mind when I think about this is there was a match I played in like the Dominaria week one standard format where I was playing like black white knights against a blue white control player. We're on camera and I went back and watched the match and there's a point where my opponent is kind of missing line drops. They're stuck on four 
it's very obvious they have settled the wreckage and maybe a glimmer of genius they want to cast. And to me and Todd Anderson, who's the commentator, that's very obvious information. Uh, and I have a Karn and like something else I can cast. But the way that I sequence it is that I attack first into the settle, offering up like one creature that I don't really care about into getting settled the wreckage and then resolve my Karn as opposed to what uh, Todd is saying on commentary of like, oh, you should jam Karn here so that they're forced to like tap down and then not be able to settle me this turn. You know, neither of those is like necessarily wrong. I think both are valid ways to take that game with that mid-range, you know, this attacking mid-range deck to either value sticking the Planeswalker higher or to value getting the damage in higher because I'm winning on both axes if I choose one to go on with the way that game's playing. But it's just a matter of which direction do I want to take it with the way that I'm sequencing my spells. And that's a perfect example. Mason, which of the lines did you prefer? Because I actually know which one I prefer. In Abe's example, I was trying to listen to the content more so than think about what I would have done. I think that if I'm playing against a control deck, I would probably want my Karn to resolve more than anything. And so giving them the option to settle my one creature and one for one there and slam a Karn is very appealing to me. That's what I, but I don't that, know enough data to know. I agree with Mason. So I'm curious, how did that end up? I won that game pretty easily. It, it didn't matter either way. The, the Karn wins the I game, think, me not I having the Karn, that, and me dealing like I nine damage. Because I was attacking around settle too, right? It's like I'm sacrificing sure. yeah, yeah. like five to seven points was, of damage. I was a blue-white gamer in that meta, and that was a... Yeah. That, that was a rough matchup because of his three. It's hard to beat so. two cards a turn. And also hard to beat two creatures. My always improving moment uh, comes from just trying to like tweak and think about like the actual tournament you're playing versus like the theoretical best thing, which is funny how it's counter to what we just kind of spent some time talking about. And this is something that Abe and I have had conversations with our friend Derek about uh, where we jammed our head into the wall where it's like, Yes, if optimally over a thousand tournaments, we shouldn't play this card in our main deck. But we're playing like an eight-man tournament, and we know everyone's playing Burn, so we're going to play Core Firewalker in our deck as like an example, right? Our friend will be like, no, you're not supposed to do this, whatever, whatever. And so I, I spent some time to think about, hey, like, what is actually the best thing to win this like local modern tournament I'm going to play? Yada, yada. And thinking about like how much do I win a metagame and like think about what I know people are going to play and all that sort of stuff. And really, the always pretty moment comes from the process of figuring that out on a smaller scale, because I have a lot of experience doing this on a bigger scale. And ultimately, a lot of time what happens on the bigger scale is it's like, okay, there are small trends, but ultimately, when you look at modern, things kind of coalesce around certain spots, people play the decks they're going to play, and you can't over metagame for any small thing. I know, like, 13 of what the 16 people are going to play in this local tournament, I can do things like play a bunch of Supreme Verdicts, which I normally wouldn't do in my creature deck, especially in the main deck, but because I know I'm going to have to beat multiple Merktide players, and I had to play every Merktide player in the room, actually, at that tournament, I uh, was like, okay, I'm going to, like, put this verdict in my main deck because I also know that I'm going to play against, like, a living-in player. And so having, like, you know, a verdict is, like, pretty good for that. And there's going to be a Hammer Time player. And there's going to be this. And it's, like, all these little things. It's like, okay, I can shift things enough and do this sort of thing. But going through that process was the always improving moment because it's a much more precise thing versus this, like, ethereal thing. I'll never not take an opportunity to dunk on Derek, so I'm going to take this one. I do think that the idea of, if you honestly, conceptually, if you know 13 of the, well, you said 18 decks? 16. 16. That's so much better. You finally have a modern sideboard that makes some freaking sense. And then also a modern main deck that can be really sweet. I don't know what uh, certain people whose names rhyme with Schmerich are thinking, but like, that makes a ton of sense to me. I, I think that 
specifically, uh, Supreme Verdict is in a really interesting place in Modern. You won the tournament this weekend then, Mason? I got first place. I didn't lose a match all day. Can I ask what you played? Yeah, I played Four Color Control, the Money Pile deck I've been playing. Yeah, I, I played Money Pile, the Eternal Witness loop, not Elemental. That was what I was right. going to ask. Okay. I think that's a great choice. Can I talk about we, how I played a challenge with somebody this weekend? So this weekend, I actually played Four Color Elementals with uh, Quentin, mostly focusing on his matches. I think Matt was playing and had dropped out, and eventually all three of us were playing this weekend. We got, actually got into the conversation about Ewit versus the Elementals deck, and I had a bit of a disagreement with Matt, and one of the things that I talked about was I thought that the Ewit deck got to play a more versatile game plan, whereas they had the same ending plan, right, which is that you outvalue your opponent is the end. If all you want to do is outvalue, obviously the Elementals version is better. If you want a more versatile game plan, the Ewit version is better. And that's kind of where I landed, and it sounds like that's where you landed, Mason. Is that accurate? This is something I've realized recently because I've had to have this conversation a bunch. You guys might know this because we've talked about this a bit, but I feel like a lot of people haven't realized that this is the biggest reason, I think, personally, to play Ewits over Ragavans, is that Ewits lets you use your sideboard cards multiple times. The Ragavan build does not, nor does the Elemental deck. And so you're removing part of the weakness okay. of the ED card deck. If you look at my sideboard, my Ewit uses every card twice except Immercool. Because Immercool is that in the, the, in the is mirror. that in the Patreon Discord? It should be in the Patreon Discord. It's also on my Twitter. If you look at all my decks, every Money Pile deck I've ever played always has it where Ewit uses my card, my sideboard card multiple times. Yeah. For what it's worth, we actually ended up that one Ewit is always correct whether or not you're playing the Elemental version. And the other thing is that I want to call out that Mason just talked about is that I just think Ragavan is wrong in that deck because none of the people on the call that we were at, we started out 5-0 in this tournament, had to mulligan uh, multiple top eight rounds, but like I think that just Ragavan in that deck is wrong, especially where the format's at. So Mason, I think you made a great choice. I love the Supreme Verdict in that deck. I know that we had a, uh, in the one kid that we played, we had a player playing Two of them in the main, and they were playing the Ragavan version, and it was the best card in their deck. Yeah, the Verdict's pretty well positioned right now. Also, if you're someone who can't figure out why Ragavan, like it looks like Ragavan might be stronger, my quick sell on you is that Ragavan makes your bad matchups better, but only if you have Ragavan on one. Otherwise, it's worse because you don't have as many Ewits to pick up your cyber cards in the late game, which forces you to aggressively mulligan two Ragavan plus hate cards instead of hoping to just get a little lucky and fail rate them. I have a question for both of you about this but maybe it needs to be off show. I'm actually curious about spreading seeds again. I just don't know what I want it for. I think Etron is picking up again. I think Etron's a buy. Oh man, that was not my experience, but we'll talk about that later. Awesome. Well, let's get in to the main meat and potatoes of this week's episode. Pro Tour Streets of New Capenna standard. It's all standard all the time, baby, even though the format was half historic. We're not talking about that. That format's got made up boogaloogie cards that you can't apply to your real life and so we've decided no boogaloogie cards today and you can't disconnect on this episode if we play standard and paper so that's why we're focusing on this let's go over the point system real quick because uh spencer went through and had to go through and do all the power ranking stuff like we used to do yeah so we're going to talk about some points today with these deck lists and what that is is there's a, like a frank parson way of giving out points for our decks do in a tournament for example first place gets seven second gets six it gets less points as we go down the finishes so you're going to say, say something along the lines of like esper midrange had 300 points you know it's because there are a bunch of people playing esper midrange and that's what happened and it had some good finishes as well as showing up a bunch 
We'll get more into that as things go on. But let's hop right into things. We're going to start kind of at the bottom here with the decks. And we're just going to talk about standard for the next 40 minutes and see how things go, etc. And so all standard all the time. Naya midrange is the first thing we have here. Bob it up with about five points and one of the most exciting decks from the tournament, in my opinion. Spencer, I know you love this deck. So I want to throw it to Abe first because I know you have a lot to say about it because we were talking about before the show went. Abe, do you have any thoughts on the Naya midrange deck here? Not really many specifically. I do I do think it's kind of sweet that the format as a whole, the fact this deck exists is kind of a symptom of you just play the best three color cards. A lot of decks are play the best three colors of cards with the best mana that you can and, you know, make your exchange as well and, and have it all come together. And a deck like this existing uh, is really emblematic of that, especially something so off the beaten path compared to the metagame. I'll concede all my time to Spencer if he has a lot to say about it because I love hearing him talk about these mid-range decks. Wow, that was so kind. I have a lot to say about this deck. I want to quickly say, though, because I don't think we'll have time to cover all of the decks, Mason, mm -hmm. that Blue Red Mill, Naya Mid, and Gen Treasure all got five points. They came in eighth through tenth. I think that Naya is one of the most interesting decks because of its placement. Naya got top eight, and honestly, if we kind of look at this, it got, it got top four. It played so many of the cards that we already know is good. I'm just going to read off some of the cards uh, Gala's Greeters is a card that obviously we talked about in our pick two set review. We already know about Aspirant. We already know about Skyclave Apparition. Legion Angel is a card I've been high on for way too long. <laughs> uh, Workshop Warchief was pick two set review card. Uh, Wandering Emperor is the best card in standard. Sanctuary Warden is a card that I've I personally have gone up a lot on. Uh, Voltage Search. I don't remember if that was a pick two set review card or if we just talked about it off the show. Valorous Stance. The whole deck is just what Abe just said. If you followed the Discord, you saw me slowly moving towards this. From Jund to Naya, I'm not a Naya gamer. White is my least favorite color in Magic. That has slowly changed as I have just appreciated just gaming more. But this deck does a lot of really cool things. One is its interaction uh, with its four Voltage Surge uh, and it's uh, Valor Stance, and it's Skyclave Apparition. It plays along the curve, along with the fact that it plays all the best cards in Standard, which, in my opinion, are the Wandering Emperor, Fable of the Mirror Breaker, Wedding Announcement, and, I mean, green cards, because green is good in Standard. It does exactly what Abe says, and it kind of does it in spades. Uh, one of my problems with the Jun decks is that the Wandering Emperor is that good. So it's like, okay, should I just play Esper? And it's like, well, no. I can still do all the things I'm doing in Jund. I can still do all the things that I'm doing in Green-Red. I just get to play the other cards, right? Like Luminarch Aspirant, surprisingly enough, when you don't nerf it like they did in Historic and uh, Alchemy, is really good in Mindrange decks. So I think that this deck, wall. Only, I mean, I didn't even look at how many players played it. It had to be under five, maybe less than that, maybe less than three players. I think this deck is really good. The deck seems very powerful in the sense, like, a lot of, like, you know, on-rage strong cards that work well together and standards, like, I'm going to say some stuff pretty soon that's counter what I'm about to say, but a lot of the decks are kind of like what Abe said, with, like, three-color, best stuff, time to get the grindy time. And, uh, you know, I think this is just a great version of that, and it's very interesting to see how this is going to go. You know, we have, like, 85-ish days left to the standard format, so I'm curious to see how this deck evolves and tunes and hones itself uh, over that time, because 
that's a lot of time and there's a lot of innovation just in this deck and in this tournament in the format overall the thing we're not going to talk about today is Obnixilis because Obnixilis didn't show up despite the narrative being in you know week one wow this card's oko you know and now we're like eh, we didn't even play it the narrative at the one case that i've been playing mm-hmm. was that ob was bad it was good in black red and some versions of jund but it was actually just a bad card personally i don't think it's a bad card it seems like it's pretty easy to kill in standard uh, right now, unless you're playing black red, like you mentioned, right? So like then it's kind of hard in the other spots, and it really takes a lot of grinding attrition stuff. And the black red stuff can't keep up with the other colors. Like I think you put Ob in a lot of formats, and Ob's really good, uh, never Oko level, but just strong. And it's not surprising that like when everything's about grinding, and a lot of the grinding actually comes from the battlefield with things like I believe it's Rafine is the Esper card that connives as Ward One, yeah. Luminarch Aspirant Wedding Announcement. There's just a lot of ways to like push in on stuff. I'm not surprised that Ob dies a bunch. I think what you just said highlights why Ob has been doing better in things like Historic and Explorer, where you end up the three mana Planeswalker, and also like the ability to grab it off of different things and like just the synergies that it gets are way more important in the older formats at with its mana cost than what you get in standard. And while that synergy with chariot was good in like the first, I don't know, two weeks, it has just been bad since the format's just been so much about controlling the battlefield. It feels like uh, that this card didn't feel like it was doing much to progress that when you had one in play, like you would wind up with, one maybe two devil tokens because you're sacrificing like a three power thing and then you're upticking a bunch but your opponent's really just taking like four damage or maybe discarding a card they don't really need to be progressing and curving out on you when you're doing that and you wind up losing the board pretty bad to to most cards that are pretty good i think the most impressive i've seen it be is where people were trying it in those uh like fight rigging shells with um shakedown heavy and stuff but none of those decks really showed up at the at the pt and they're not not really a thing like outside of that interaction where you're already trying to push a huge power creature into play that's not really worth i did lose to that deck a bunch for like a hot like three days it's pretty sweet it's just i don't know it's not it's all fragile let's move on to the next decks we have a pair of control decks here we have teamer control with seven points and jessica hanada with eight hanada won the professional tour that was our champion played uh let's quickly talk about the teamer control deck honestly it seems like there's just a lot of stuff in the hopes of, like fighting other control decks and you have the teamer for things like coma and a real belief in the card titan of industry. And there are things like a Seekers Chariot in the sideboard and like, you know, but for the most part, you're kind of like the Hanada deck, but you're choosing or the Hanada and the the Storm deck. You are playing Titan of Industry instead. And so I, I'm not a huge believer in this version of the deck, but I think all the blue deck red decks are the same the same, sorry. And I think the mill version is the worst. But I think that the evidence shows that the team of control deck had six decks and only got, what did it get? It got seven points. So technically it did above average uh, for our point system. I don't know that like that matters when you contextualize that every blue red deck did well. There wasn't a blue red control deck that didn't do well. Right. So it's like, where do you judge that? It's hard to talk about this and not talk about like the Hinata stuff too. I think that deck's bad for what it's worth. So if you want my opinion, I think that deck is unplayable. You should not play it. I cannot believe it won the Pro Tour. That's how bad I think it is. I think it's the team of rhinos of this format. I think it's just bad. Now you're talking my language, speaking a little modern to me. Its baseline is great, right? Like you have this, like, you have to deal with this thing. 
But this thing happens on like this very convenient turn. It doesn't do. I don't want to take anything away from this winner, right? But they got really lucky. This deck did not do good. It got eight points, and seven of it came from winning the event. I did not explain this other than I would not play this deck. I think that that has been proven for three months. This deck is an old standard deck that got proven that it could not compete, but it is a great glass cannon deck, and we talked about that last week. If you want to hear our opinions on glass cannon decks, listen to last week's episode, but that is what I will say on Hinata. Yeah, it does kind of feel like, in general, there's just these decks that are using access to big bursts of mana in one way or another to prey on the fact there's a bunch of these mid-range decks that are just trying to play good rate things on the curve and like all of these strategies from a macro perspective are pretty good against against the more curve mid-range decks and so you know the fact that that lends towards you know a deck like jessica Hinata or these this team or control deck which was you know, using Titan of Industry as its top-out plan instead of uh, the, like, Leer combo we'll get to. They used to be Epiphany decks, or whatever it is they're ramping to. Their top-end take-over-the-game card kind of varies the way that they, they choose to end the game, but the engine they operate on to try to attack this mid-range format is all the same. And the fact that those were all, you know, they could have a bunch of different takes on the end game of it, but still find, you know, relative levels of success. And even this deck, which kind of does the same thing from a top-down perspective, but has a different way of doing it with Hanada and Magma Opus, uh, I think really shows the strength of those decks positioning in this Pro Tour metagame. I, I do agree. I think that the Jessica Hanada deck, it has its gimmick that gives it, it gives it its edge, but I think that you can't really rely on that. I think the number of cards that are currently stopping Magma Opus are a problem for this deck. I don't think that Titan of Industry has this problem, and I don't think the Storm cards have this problem. Mason, I, I've taken too much time away from you here, but... I like the assessment that the problem with the Hinata deck is we kind of need Hinata to unfairly use Opus in comparison to like Leer plus the Windfall with the Dragons um, and all that sort of stuff. So that is the reason I think this deck fails is because things like Disdainful Stroke and Negate, you know, having to keep your Hinata on the board are all like pretty big hurdles that are not there for the other versions of it. Uh, and while the payoff is stronger when you go slam slam, and, and a lot of times it's not even necessarily always stronger, which is a like bad thing to happen. One of the things that happened before the Pro Tour is I actually text these two about the blue red control deck because it originally the things that were happening in the challenge were this like crushing uh, cleansing wildfire filled ruin decks, right? And I was like, well, why not just be a a, a Swari disruption deck? And then it turns out that that's exactly there will everyone figured that out, and that's what people switch to. And then it's like, well, okay, if that's what people are switching to, then like Magma Opus is just bad. Like this is not what I want to be doing in this format. When talking about the like comparison team of rhinos, when you listen to us talk about this, a lot of it's like if you're going to buy a standard deck and play a bunch of standard tournaments in a row. It's hard to suggest something like this, like the other stuff, even though obviously it won the Pro Tour, and like it's not like the deck's actually unplayable, just in comparison to the other decks. It's like, why would you play this over that if you could buy any one deck? You know, and they're all basically exactly. the same it's no, it, it really is, right? Like I, I talk all this crap on rhinos. It's not that rhinos is bad. Why rhinos? That is the exact problem, Mason. <laughs> Let, let, let's move on. We, we've, we've talked enough about this, and we're going to have to talk about the Jeskai deck anyways in a little bit, uh, which will cover this. 
Jund Midrange, which is funny uh, because it does have a white card. I like this deck a lot. I think it's pretty sweet and not just because it plays Black Market Tycoon, which I'm a huge fan of. Spencer, what do you think about this, this Jund deck? You know, you were talking a lot about Jund in the early weeks. I love you, Mason. You're my favorite. If you like smashed a bunch of Spencer decks together from our Discord, you might end up with this exact deck list uh, from Shota. There are a few cards that are pretty clearly good in standard. Chariot is one of them. I think that Shota ended up in a really, really strong place. Rivetier's Charm ended up... I don't know if I talked about this last week on the podcast. I don't remember kind of where we ended up. It was something that I wanted to talk about, but like... That card ended up being way stronger than I expected. That draw three, as good as Abe and I talked about it in that pick two set review, was actually a draw three a lot. Like, a lot, a lot uh, in these mid-range decks. And one of the things that Shota did really well in building his deck is, one, I think that the card that Mason just talked about, the... Um, Jenny Fay. That, with Galia's Greeters, is busted. That, with Black Market Tattoon, is busted. And then you have these fun ofs, and I know that people hate fun ofs, but I actually think there's some really good reasons for these fun ofs. Workshop Warchief being a fun of in the main deck with the other thing in the sideboard is because that card is good in specific matchups. That's what I've noticed about it in standard. You get the Fable Mirror Breaker 2 of combo where you can just make as many of these as you want when you have the mana. This is something that will actually come up a lot for the rest of this podcast. Do either of you understand what I'm talking about so you can say it instead of me? Yeah, the Kiki-Jiki you make. Tell the listeners about this. Well, so you can do the obvious thing of, like, if you have a Kiki-Jiki, you end of turn target the Rhino, and then you have a Rhino in your turn, you can do it again, and then you can hit them. That's cool. But if you have two Kiki-Jikis uh, that have transformed at end of turn, at, at the end of the opponent's turn, you have one Kiki target one, the other Kiki target the other. Now you have four Kiki-Jikis, uh, and with those four Kiki-Jikis, you get the idea. <laughs> so you can do it for as many mana as you have. Yes. And then you can attack for that many. And there are a few decks in this format that do this, and I think that this is one of the ones that do it the best. One of the things that this deck is also really interesting about is that it doesn't play Dragon, it doesn't play any BS, and it actually is one of the only decks, it is maybe the only deck that plays Valky, and I actually think that's a huge deal in this format, because it is one of the best top ends in the format. I also think that it's one ofs in Duress, Ray of Refinement, and Infernal Grasp Smashing are really good. I think this is, deck is beautiful. I love Shoda decks normally, and the fact that he played mid-range instead of control is insane. Yeah, I think that like the thing that stood out to me the most about this deck list is just how much of it seems so targeted at making the Esper deck and just in general the other mid-range decks pieces of interaction significantly worse against it and and especially esper i think that uh with the amount of deck that showed up with voltage surge this like plan works out less but the black market tycoon plus genie fey is really good against the wandering emperor it's really good against vanishing verse gala greeters is very easy to get value off of before they can afford to spend two mana to vanishing verse which is usually their only removal spell it kind of has a bunch of these engine cards that are difficult to disrupt with the removal that was being played by the Esper decks, which wound up being the most played decks and were the obvious deck coming in. And I think that just the way that the threat base is constructed and the decisions that were made were really, really smart. And I personally am actually really interested in seeing if the Naya mid-range deck starts to adopt things like Ginny Fey and Black Market Tycoon in pushing itself forward to 
you know, have more grind in these, like, emerging mid-range mirrors, as well as, you know, this alternative way to generate pressure outside of just casting its threats. That is what I messaged you earlier, Abe. What do I, what do I owe you for saying Oh, it? I didn't get that message, actually. But I think that, like, there's a lot of really, really smart stuff. I think Shota had probably the best-built mid-range deck in the tournament, based on looking over uh, a lot of these lists, down to even having my boy unleash the Inferno in the 75 to handle extra like fables and meat hook massacres lying around the battlefield so many good things about this list and i especially the Ginny fey black market tycoon stuff that's a real untapped unexplored avenue that i think if it starts to get adopted in multiple places either as these jun decks focusing on treasure push forward or the naya decks start to adopt it it will cause a real need for the esper decks to change in kind to uh to react to them well, while we're here talking about mid-range decks that are kind of like lining up against the format, let's look at Grixis Vampires, which has what some beautiful people are calling the Rogue Refiner of Standard Corpse Appraiser. What do we think about this deck? This deck's kind of spicy. We saw a Siggy pilot this at top four, I think. My brain's failing me right now. It's been a long weekend. It's so hard because of they adopted the Smash method, but he did top four, yes. I mean, this deck's like pretty exciting. It's, you know, got the words Grixis and Vampires in it. And in reality, it's kind of just like a mid-range deck that has some stuff with the vampires and, you know, there's some value to be had there. But what, what do you all think about this deck? Because this deck is, you know, trying to compete in the same avenue. We just spoke a lot of praise about the Jun deck and this is trying to compete with that. It's trying to compete with Esper. Can I beat our chests for a minute? I was looking over deck lists uh, as I was making the show notes today. And if you just listen to... Constructive criticism since Abe and Spencer came back. I think 80% or more of the cards in our pick two set reviews top eight of this pro tour. Straight up, it might be more than that. I think we annihilated this pro tour. And I think that there's a lot of things going on with this deck specifically. First of all, I think that we had a miss in Corpse Appraiser. Corpse Appraiser, in addition to the fact that Tenacious Underdog exists, was something I did not appreciate. So Mason, as Tenacious Underdog was your card, I would love you to talk about like why Corpse Appraiser became so good and important in this pro tour. Yeah, so if you don't know, Corpse Appraiser is uh, Grixis Mana for a 3-3 that says, when Corpse Appraiser enters the battlefield, exile up to one target, creature card from a graveyard if a card is put into exile this way look at the top three cards of your library put one in your hand and the rest into your graveyard uh so it's just kind of like a three mana thing that you play that's like a buy on the board that generates your little value and then like has some nice synergies with your deck with things like tenacious underdog which can come back from uh the graveyard i don't know i think this deck is interesting and it tries to like it's funny because it's a Grixis deck, but it tries to go under the other decks more and kind of like be the, it's a, it's a weird example, but it's like, it's the boss lie of all the mid-range decks we have right now where it can grind, it can do stuff, but it really does try to sneak in. I agree. It is definitely a black-red deck that like is playing the blue-black Planeswalker. I can't remember Kaito. the name off the top of my head. Yeah. And then like it, cheap interaction blue spells. Like, that is this deck. So Grixis is like a funny name for it. That's what your man is telling you to do. I think it does a great job of it. It's sweet. I don't have too much to say on it. I just think it's interesting how 
I think this deck has a lot of problems in a lot of matchups, but it's able to like go under and kind of like tempo people. I want to challenge you on this. This was the best performing deck of the Pro Tour. So I, th- I think it did really well, and I think it is kind of strong. I just think that as time goes on and we learn more and we're like kind of used to like what this deck's trying to do, I can see the format kind of congealing around it because I feel like decks like this often have like spots where they're good versus like being consistently good. Can I ask you a question that I'm maybe I'm assuming too much? Are you saying that because a super team played it and because of the super team that played it? No. Okay. I think that Grixis Vampires is really similar to what Mason said, but I think it has more staying power. What will end up happening because of where we're at is that there are very clearly some mid-range decks, right? You've got Esper, Jund, Naya, and Grixis. So there's something missing, right? Bant did not do anything in this Pro Tour. So a couple of things can happen, in my opinion. One, Grixis, which was the best performing deck, now that it exists and people know about it, gets hated out like Mason said. What I think will happen is actually what Abe said. I think that the best cards will congeal into the format, which will end up being a Naya mid-range deck. And thus Jund, Esper, and Grixis will just be week-to-week decks, and Naya will become the best deck in standard. And thus, I kind of agree with Mason in that it will fall out of favor. What about you, Abe? Yeah, I think that like the most appealing things about this Grixis deck are that it gets to play the lowest and tightest mana curve, and uh, its card advantage engine is tied to the least answerable thing. Evelyn, which we didn't really talk about much, is like a pretty strong card advantage engine in this deck because of the amount of vampires it has, and that is a card that is difficult to remove with the removal of the format being primarily Voltage Surge, Wandering Emperor, uh, Vanishing Verse. It just lines up really, really well against a lot of that, while also allowing you to play at instant speed through interaction without getting punished and use mana off things like Fable Mirror Breaker. So this kind of just plays a lot of the best mid-range cards while still having a low mana curve and a very tight and lean curve. And I think that that was a huge advantage coming into this tournament where people were just kind of bringing out their mid-range piles to fight a mid-range arms race. Because if you can be the most efficient and interact the most efficiently, you're going to have an edge. I think that as the decks become more refined, this information is all out there, this deck will struggle a little more, but there's always going to be an edge to being able to play a leaner game plan, especially in the face of uh, a lot of the slower control decks that kind of need setup time. I think the format probably does start to coalesce around the best singular you know, cards and ways to pick apart the overall dynamics that were very apparent, and the way that this team chose to do it and the way that the Grixis deck chose to do it is one of the strongest with the fact that the control decks were the best step up to answering the mid-range decks. You just made me think of two things, Abe. One of them has to do with something that Mason and I talked about kind of like five days ago. One of them being, I don't know that Naya will end up being like the end-all be-all, right? You actually had mentioned earlier in the show that like it's also the, like the Jun treasure decks end up being the best thing. And to me, those have been the two best things in Standard. I don't know if that's like me being like a green-red mage or whatever, but Mason actually mentioned to me that some of the Jun stuff that was doing similar stuff to, to Shota's deck, but then like top ending at Titan of Industry looked really good. I think it had like, what was it, Mason? Like three top eights in the challenges? Yeah. In like two weeks. None of that showed up. The, the mid-range mirror wasn't about going super big. 
it was about what you just said, Abe, which was being consistent and linear and like making your plan. I also think all the Titan of Industry stuff, just you just fall over and die to the Hanada, Jeskai Storm stuff. You're not prepared to fight that fight at all. What Mason just said is exactly right. That like, while Titan of Industry seems like a great card, like the second you fall into the the blue red control decks, you're just actually in big trouble. Uh, let's quickly talk about Naya Runes. This deck's been around for a little bit. It got 13 points, so one better than old Grixis the Vampires. We talked a lot about Naya midrange. Abe, do you have any thoughts on the, the runes? It's like the mono red of the format. You know, it's just the your deck that is pretty unchanging, has the same good cards in it, has its linear game plan, like, you know, probably like 55% to win a game on the play or something. I know a lot of people, a lot of pros who played it talked about liking it because they felt like a lot of their games were very die roll dependent. They might as well play the most consistent and proven deck that, do, that does that, but didn't seem like there's anything revolutionary going on in these decks compared to the Naya runes decks we've seen for months now, so... Yeah, I think this deck's bad. I think you should not play this deck. It was one of the worst performing decks at the Pro Tour. It's super overrepresented. I don't think it has a good Esper matchup. I don't think it has a good mid-range matchup. I think this deck's bad, and you should not play it. I think that there will be weeks where that's not true. It's like almost the affinity of Standard at this point. People were super prepared for it this weekend. They will be super prepared for it because people will be playing these decks for a few weeks, and you need to wait to pull this out again. That's okay. Like, that doesn't mean this... I should not say this deck is bad. This deck is not bad. This is a good deck. It is not well positioned right now, and you should maybe stay away for a couple weeks. This deck had some innovations at the Pro Tour. I cannot remember them off the top of my head, but I saw a few things from deck lists that I was really impressed with. It's hard, right? Because like Showdown of the Scalds should be one of the best cards in Standard. And for some reason, that was not true this weekend. And that means a couple of things. One, it means that the creatures that are offering those mid-range plans are outperforming this card that should be outpacing all of them. Or two, that enchantments aren't good. Both of them mean that this deck is underperforming right now, which the data shows is true. Yeah, I have no real strong thoughts about the Naya Runes deck. Uh, I'd much rather spend our time talking about the Jeskai Storm deck. Uh, the Jeskai Storm deck came in with 30 points, which is the second highest finishing of a deck we are talking about today this we kind of alluded to earlier is like the blue red package but instead of playing you know hinata or titan of industry you have a leer goldspan dragon and the six uh windfall effects you have unexpected windfall and then the new one a uh, big score and you kind of cast a bunch of spells move through your whole deck and then you know you like show of confidence get a bunch of power and kill somebody and you're like a controlling deck that does that and so instead of taking multiple turns in a row to kill somebody, you take one big turn and kill somebody. And uh, I think this is like a pretty well-positioned deck if everyone's going to try and fight mid-range battles. Like, the idea of being able to keep up with them with having a combo finish that has just, like, generically good cards uh, outside of the few small combo pieces you have in, like, Show of Confidence, I think is a pretty interesting spot to be. And it seemed to perform fairly well. Yeah, this was the second-best performing deck at the Pro Tour outside of just Vampires. Which to me means it was the best performing deck, right? Because it like was the second most played deck. For two weeks, people were on the LD version of the deck. Now we see this version of the deck. I think that Lear is just here to stay. We talked a lot about this at the beginning of the show, Mason, but like I'm impressed by this. I'm currently in a league with this deck. I think it's very powerful. I think this deck's really good. 
I think what you just said is really important though, where it like it still takes a lot of time. Like you, you know, you're targeting a gold span dragon like a lot of times to make, you know, eleven treasures or whatever. But your opponent knows they're dead. They're gonna die, especially because you have protection spells and ways to bounce your dragon, play your dragon again, make all the mana again, like it all happens at once. They just die. I just want to say Lear is an incredibly silly card. It feels so insane that a deck that does something this powerful is a standard deck. You know, something that literally draws almost its entire deck, casts all its spells multiple times out of its graveyard. It makes a nearly infinitely large Goldsman Dragon and kills you in one turn. Kind of insane. But that, that's all I really have to say about the deck. Yeah, it also has some weird, like, arena problems where, like, Ingles, Tangrams, who was playing this deck, timed out. Because, like, he disconnected for a second and, like, just couldn't do it all. I did have an arena crash today playing this deck for what it's worth. I don't even know what was happening. My internet turned off on the network that I was on three times today playing this deck. Which has never happened to me ever. It wasn't like my internet was off. It, It went down to zero bars. Like, I used too much internet. It then shut down the bars. Didn't disconnect me. But I had no internet, had to switch connections really quickly, because luckily I have a, a router that has two services. But I, I definitely would have lost multiple matches today had I not had that. I think what Mason's saying, there is a, I don't know if it's like a service problem, but it is a problem. Well, I just think the deck will be stronger in paper than it will be online. You will not have that issue, and I think... I mean, if anything, it should more be that he'll be overwhelmed and not know what to do, more so than anything else along those lines. But yeah, I just think it's strong and it pokes a hole in things. We're getting a little long in the tooth here, so let's talk about Esper Midrange. I don't want to go over it. I don't want to like completely breeze over it, but it is the most played deck. It has 43 points. Um, it is the deck everyone kind of talked about beforehand, and it looks like every standard format's end of its life. The three best color, or three of the best colors, or some of the best cards aggressively slanted typically mid-range deck it is the explorer of this format the green black explorer it's like the abzan it is trying to just grind while being proactive enough and luckily it has threats that grind and are proactive so what do we think about esper mid-range i think it's the best level one deck i think that the level zero deck was obviously naya the deck we talked about earlier i think the best level one deck was esper mid-range obviously the deck took seconds and had a pretty big problem with this deck i think that Obviously, Rafina was one of my hits in the Pick 2 set review, but I actually think this card is too good. I really hate the games that Rafine gets played on the play. I think that on the play, this card is too good. Sure. I think the deck is very strong. It'd be very hard for me not to play something like this, Naya with the Storm deck. Basically, at all the tournaments coming up for the foreseeable future. And it's, I think it's really hard for this deck to go too, too wrong. And I think that's like a pretty powerful place to be in standard. It has like a lot of good walkers that take over the game, good interaction, and like, reasonable cyborg cards and reasonable plans and you can tweak it a little bit too i think that a big key to succeeding with the cesper deck is going to be understanding which of the cards in your deck your opponents are trying to fight over the most if you look over all the list from the pc there are ones that are playing you know more copies of obscure interceptor to kind of double threat with their wandering emperors they're ones playing more loths to go bigger or uh, more two drops like malevolent hermit to go smaller to try to figure out how to best position against a field of what they assumed was likely going to be decks that look like themselves. And if you can figure that out, you're going to have the best build for the weekend. 
and then if things break your way you're you're going to be good i do think that's most of the trick i mean obviously all of your cards are really really good you are playing just the best suite of threats uh that you can play that cost less than a million mana outside of having access to fable of mirror breaker and short of that you are just playing the best cards so it's a very safe bet it's the deck that if i were only to play one deck and play it every weekend i would feel most confident bringing in playing and, and keeping on top of if i were to start like today but you will have to do a lot of adapting because you are the deck that will always have target on its back it's so funny it is that we are ending up where we are at in the world of magic because typically i would call murktide the esper of magic of modern right but I think that because of where the pandemic left us, I would call this the Merktide of standard. Like, this is Merktide. You are the best deck, quote-unquote. You will have the most people playing you, and you need to very meticulously decide what cards you're going to play to end up in the spot to win. Yeah, and that's like an appealing, fun thing for a lot of people and a lot of players. Uh, and if that's kind of your thing... Go ahead, get ready. Week to week, there's a lot of exciting and fun things you can do and a lot of really cool spots to pick your battles and figure that out. And that's like a fun song and dance to go through. And I think we have a pretty exciting format for that. We kind of talked about this here a little bit. But what would y'all play and why? And I'll start with you, Spencer. I would either play Jinder Naya. Honestly, that's not even just like a green-red gamer thing. I just actually think that like taking the things that Jen Midrange and Naya did and applying them to Jen Treasure seems really appealing. And also, I think that Naya Midrange just has the best cards. Just straight up, Naya Midrange has the best cards in Standard outside of one card, which is the 3-drop in Esper. And I think that the fact that the Naya Midrange deck being so underplayed did so well means that you can beat that deck. That's the only places that I would end up, despite the fact that all I want to do is ramp, I would just end up in one of those spots. Hey, what about you? Yeah, I kind of echo Spencer. I think I'd spend uh, spend a good amount of my time working on refining the Naya deck and, you know, working in those ideas from uh, Rushota's Jun deck to kind of hybridize those ideas and see see where it can go. There was also, we kind of uh, glossed over, but there was a interesting, like, Jund treasures with a blue sideboard package of counter spells where maybe if you're playing that many treasure makers, you can afford to push your mana into having better interaction really like i could see that being a very late stage form of uh, of the best mid-range deck in the format being that kind of double splash situation but you know that that's where i would put my attention personally i think that has the most room for growth and to be to be dominant in in the decks that exist right now yeah we didn't talk about it autumn burchette played a four color beatdown deck which was two colors with yeah so like that's like it's basically a green red deck it has a uh, riveteer's charm is like a draw spelled basically but then like has sideboard it has like you know negate the sample stroke infernal grasp and uh like uh there's something else i can't figure out the name where it is right now unleashed inferno and you basically are like trying to do that sort of stuff so it's along the same lines of that and in fact if this might even be the deck you were mentioning there um just in my head i had it kind of categorized as green red because it's predominantly that i do think that like if you just buy all the cards from our pick two set review since Abe and I joined the show, you would have owned like every card of this pro tour. Like you just would own them all. Down to the face breakers. Does Autumn Deck it was playing Facebreaker too, right? Yeah. I remember seeing yeah, I was I remember seeing that card and I mean like bingo. And Goldhound. Like it was doing or gold yeah, is it Goldhound? Is that Goldhound. the name of the It was, a, it was like the Sentinel Magda show. Personally, I think I would probably end up on the Esper stuff. 
at least at first, just because I'm not sure where things would go. And I just think those things are generally good. And I kind of force people to beat me. And like Spencer said, the Rafini, I think is the card's name. Uh, if I'm on the play with that card, I feel like my win rate is going to be very, very high. And it does not matter what they're doing. One thing to think about uh, for those who are about to play the expert deck is that you should look at a lot of Esper lists. Obviously, mm-hmm. they were all very different in this Pro Tour. Your Esper deck should look different every week, too, would be my guess. You know, I don't disagree with Mason. I think that, like, if you know what you want your Esper deck to look like, it's going to be that that Merktide deck of this format, and it will be good. I, I You just need to know what you want it to look like. That's going to do it for our main topic here, talking about Standard. In a pretty exciting place, we're... Probably going to come back to standards like I mentioned earlier on the show. We got about 85 days left with the Streets of New Capenna as the main star of the show. That is a long time for standard to be in one format. Uh, so we're going to see either one or two things happen. We're going to see a lack of innovation from this week forward because it was the Pro Tour a month into it. Or we're going to see some crazy wild stuff happen over the next coming weeks. I hope it is the latter because that is some of the coolest stuff that happens in standard is when we get into check notes week 11 of standard so i uh i can't wait to see what happens with all of that but that's gonna do it for main topic we do have some pretty important housekeeping things to talk about and so spencer i'm gonna let you uh take it away on that yeah i when making the show notes, did not realize when this would go up versus when the next episode would go up so i want to tell my favorite oasis story oasis game story as we say goodbye and mine actually happened today you know, I can't speak for Ava Mason, but uh, Oasis has been a huge part of my Magic career. And I was able to order one of my Pioneer decks that I'll be trying to play at the RCQ season. This Man, I'm going to cry. Uh, I was able to order a Pioneer deck incomplete today. And I thought about all the times that whether I was working at Oasis or whether I was just borrowing cards from the sponsorship. And I didn't realize that we were going to be recording on the 23rd this month moved by so fast as we uh decided to say goodbye to oasis and i talked to alex that this podcast literally would not exist without oasis the current wizards play design team having hinderocker on it brian holly on it also wouldn't exist without oasis and, you know, while this is just a little store that sponsored this podcast, it's had a huge impact on Magic. It had a huge impact on me. If you've ever qualified for RPTQ or Pro Tour with one of my decks, or from a Michael Hinderocker deck, or from a Brian Holly article or whatever, Oasis had an impact on that. And I just, I don't know, I wanted to say thank you before I inevitably right now need to announce our new sponsor because this podcast might go up around the time that that sponsor is our sponsor. I don't know. It feels weird to do that, though. So, thank you to Oasis. Depending on when we record, they will be our sponsor next week. Their inventory has skyrocketed. Just check them out. Use the code WouldThatBeGood or CCMTG, um, whether it's your first order or all your orders. But uh, Game Grid Lehigh, a local store that runs 1Ks, will be our sponsor moving forward. And it won't just be our sponsor. They'll be sponsoring the entire network moving forward. And I have been working closely with the owner, and I'm really excited for this. I think that it's going to benefit Abe and Mason a great deal, as well as Sam and the the common knowledge people. I'm really excited for it. 
I think that, you know, Oasis and us have been moving in different directions. And that's why this, this mutual change has been good is that we got to pick the sponsor that I thought was best for us. Stay tuned for what happens from Gigi Lehigh. They will be sponsoring the Constructed Criticism Network events. They will be the same price sport plus, And I really appreciate them. I don't know, Mason and Abe, do you want to say anything about Oasis or about our new sponsor before we move on? Or the events? I don't have anything to say about Oasis other than the times I've ordered from them. Everything's been great. They've been a great sponsor to me. They've always, you know, given me what they've agreed to give me on time and everything. And they seem like they run a great store. And I have appreciated their support. And I look forward to working with uh, this next door. But eight years is a long time to be doing something. So hats off to them for, for believing in a podcast that has been so great. And I'm excited to see what this next thing is doing for the network as well. Yeah, Oasis Games has been a, a great sponsor. I actually wore, it was just next up in the line, but I wore my Oasis shirt uh, to my LGS on Sunday and someone walked up and said like, hey, have you been to Oasis Games before? And I, <laughs> and I said, oh yeah, they actually sponsor my podcast. And that person walked away because I said, no, I've never actually been to Oasis. And so I assumed they're from Utah and they liked it. But it does get brought up town to town. That's because they've had great service and their name is unique and they have a cool logo and it stands out. So... You know, the experience of Oasis has been really good. The other stuff at a good price and everything. And if you've ever listened to the show for a long time, you're like, one day I'm going to make my order. You should make your order now. Get 15% off the first one, Mason. They can do the code. Last one. Uh, would that be good? No, CCMTG. Whatever. Would that be <laughs> it Who would, cares? It would be good They're if gone. They got, if, I'll, I'll if it, would be, <laughs> it would be good if they got 4% off of every order, though. That would be good. God, that one has not aged well with the show. That people are just like, why? Why is this? The thing? Uh, anyways, real ones now. Let's move on to the Patreon question. The show will always be free, but if you want to support the show, you get a couple benefits. You get to like watch this live, like some people are doing right now. You get to have the Discord. You get to talk. We post deck lists. We have conversations. We do all that sort of thing, and you get to ask questions that end up on the show, like this one, which is when you look at results from a tournament to see what's doing well or what's going on in the format. What exactly are you looking for in a deck list? to answer those pre-existing questions. The main things that I'll say I'm looking for, specifically for a format like Standard, and because I think for older formats, I'm looking for trends more than anything, but in Standard, I'm looking, like Abe mentioned, ad nauseum on the show. How do these threats line up against the removal and the answers to the questions being asked? And what are the best things to do? And it's part of like why Spencer's like frustration with Rafine and why it's so strong, dodges a bunch of things, makes the things that have to answer it cost one more, and there's just not a lot of good ways. It outsizes things in the battlefield, too. So that is one of the main things I'm looking for. Spencer, what about you? I'll just mention Rafine, and I think that has to do with... I, I think it's not just standard. I think Pioneer and Modern uh, apply to this, too, where, like, Rafine has this thing, and it's actually why Vault Surge, I think, was so popular this weekend. It's like, how do I answer this card? Also, you'll notice that there are a lot of decks had either a 4-1 or a 3-1 split between Vault Surge and... Abe, do you know the card? It was one black. Deals Raven minus field. four, minus four. Yeah! It's like, what is this card doing in these decks? And it's like, well, it kills a specific threat. And that threat was really important in Standard this weekend. I think that that is what I'm looking for, just like Mason said. I don't even have a disagreement. I think that when you look at things like Modern, it maybe gets a little more blurry. But even then, like, think of the best decks in Modern, they're decks that have graveyard interaction. They're decks that have overall versatile interaction. 
and then large or hard to deal with threats. And that is true across standard, modern, and pioneer. And when you do those things, your deck becomes good. And so I look for decks that do those things. And if I can't find that, then I move on to, well, okay, what is the best threat then? So that, that would be my answer. My answer is a, a lot more top-down than Spencer's. I actually, looking at it to make sure I got the name of the article right, there's an article right three and a half years ago on Star City. Crazy to say that number, it's been so long. It's titled New Sweet Archetype, Modern Archetypes for Baltimore, and it was an article where the pitch was actually, I just want to go look at modern decklist dumps and break down the trends that are going on in the format from that, looking at unmarked path of what's going on in the format outside of at the time, which was just like, Dredge, Humans, KCI, you know, the, the normal things that everyone was playing. At this form, it was kind of close to solved. And in that article, I actually break down a ton of these, like, off-the-wall wacky decks that you don't even hear about anymore. Start looking at the things that they're doing to make them succeed enough to 5-0. If you go and read that article, I think it really does a perfect example of me outlining that thought process that I have when I'm looking over things and trying to look at what's doing well and why and what's going on in a format and what those common threads are and where I find them within looking at all of these different decks. And so I would say, go and find that article. I can link it in the Discord. Uh, I probably just will. You can read it and hopefully that's helpful to you. But yeah, it's more about looking at, for me, the bigger picture of how people are trying to gain edges in common ways. What are the routes people are taking to solve problems? You know, and, and in standard, sometimes it can be the small scale things of how are people trying to answer these threats or what are the interactive spells people are playing to try to answer what they think is going on. Or in a format is much broader than, than that in like modern pioneer can be what are the ways people are attacking everything? How, how is it they're trying to win? What is the way they're generating card advantage? What's their most important resource? Look at threads like that and then evaluate how to be working with that as your basis. Awesome. Well, hopefully that was helpful for you. If you want to support the show, you can do Patreon all that sort of stuff. That's greatly appreciated. But you can also like, subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to check out the rest of the network while you're there. You want to check out Common Knowledge. It is a popper podcast, all about popper, all the time, baby. And then drafting archetypes with Samuel Black it goes over different archetypes every week, and it's a pretty exciting show. That's gonna do it for us. If someone wants to find you. Abe, where can they go? You can go to twitter.com slash more nothings. Uh, you can always DM me for coaching with the Hammer Time deck. Sessions have been going really well. I was helping someone who's actually, for the first time, had someone who's actually just playing my 75 post on Twitter. And we were talking it over. If you want to help with that, hit me up in the DMs. Uh, we, can, we can get you set up. How about you, Spencer? If you want the RCQ qualification guarantee, you can hit me up on Twitter at Spencer13H. If you don't qualify for an RCQ off of my coaching, or you don't feel like you are hashtag always improving, I will give you your money back. That's the best way to get a hold of me. You can also find me on the YouTube channel. I'm going to do a deck tech this week on a few decks, probably Naya, Esper, and Jund. Check that out here on the Concerted Criticism YouTube channel. And then I stream almost every week now over at twitch.tv slash This last week I did a Zelda Breath of the Wild stream. The week before that I did a Lego Star Wars stream, done magic streams, Smash streams, multi-gaming streaming stuff. Where are you, Mason? Uh, you can find me at twitter.com at Mason E. Clark underscore. Bigger number, better person. Lost all my followers. Let's get them back. And you can also find my articles each and every week over at Card Kingdom. 
Who knows what's going to happen this week? I have to write it all tomorrow, and I haven't even put my pitch in yet. Life's wild sometimes, baby. So make sure to check that one out. You can find me here each and every week and over at twitch.tv slash Clark. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Constructed Criticism, and we'll see you all next week for another episode of CCMTG.